Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is an RNZ podcast. And as far as we know, the last Ben and Olivia was seen was getting onto this yacht with this mystery man. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, host of the Daily Afternoons programme on RNZ. You're listening to Crimes NZ, a series where I talk with people who are connected in some way or another with serious crimes that have happened here in New Zealand. In this episode, I talk with journalist Mike White, who's covered the case of Olivia Hope and Ben Smart since they first went missing in the Marlborough Sounds on New Year's Day 1998. I remember very clearly I was driving into work. I worked at the Marlborough Express, a local newspaper in Blenheim, as a reporter there, and I heard Gerald Hope um, speaking on national radio about the disappearance of Olivia and the way he, he was so forcefully speaking, it was clear that this wasn't, you know, just a run-of-the-mill um, misunderstanding or a youthful elopement or anything like that, that he knew Olivia um, so very well and knew that something serious had happened even at that stage. And so I was thrust into the case kind of as a reporter right from that moment. Before we get to um, the case against Scott Watson, what do we know for sure about what happened that night? Well, as background for those that don't know, uh, Furno Lodge in the Marlborough Sounds is a very popular place for New Year's parties, and about uh, 1,500, 2,000 people converged on Furno that evening. For, oh, wow, for the I didn't realise it was that party. many. Yeah, a load of... Most people arrive by boat, but it's, it's um, not accessible by road. And it's a major, major party. So what we know for sure is that there were a lot of uh, people, a lot of drunk people. Um, sometime during the night, uh, Ben and Olivia uh, met. Um, and as far as we know... They were last seen when they were heading back to the boat that Olivia was meant to be staying on that she'd arrived on called the Tamarack. Um, when Ben and Olivia got back to the Tamarack, they found there was no room. A whole lot of other people were sleeping on it. So they were looking for somewhere else to sleep and wanting to go back to shore. When uh, a water taxi arrived that was carrying Olivia's sister and another man, um, they got onto that water taxi Olivia's sister and the other man, Rick Goddard, got off. And Ben and Olivia were then on a water taxi with another couple, Hayden Morrissey and Sarah Dyer, um, the water taxi driver, Guy Wallace, and a mystery man. We'll call him the mystery man. And the mystery man almost immediately offered them a place to stay on his yacht. And as far as we know, the last Ben and Olivia were seen was getting onto this yacht 
with this mystery man and um, have never been seen since. Now, who saw the mystery man? Well, a number of people saw him potentially on shore. There was a kind of a mystery man that was sitting at the bar um, and the police suggestion was that this was the same man that was on the water taxi with Ben and Olivia and that offered them a place to stay on his yacht. So the only people that we really have kind of first uh, eyewitness identification of the mystery man, uh, Guy Wallace, the water taxi driver, Sarah Dyer and Hayden Morrissey, the other couple who were being taken to another place uh, near Ferno Lodge on the water taxi, and uh, Amelia Hope and, and Rick Goddard who, who went from the shore of Ferno to the Tamarack yacht previously. Now, we have to be really clear that most of those people they weren't thinking that something sinister was about to happen. Yeah. They weren't checking, you know, the idea of this guy or or um, really taking a lot of close notice. So when obviously the police went to these people and said, you know, what did you see? Who was this guy? What did he look like? There was a lot of uncertainty. A lot of them, they were just really tired after a night of partying, wanting to go to bed and were hunched down in the water taxi, not taking much notice of what happened. Guy Wallace, that name became quite famous in its own right, didn't it? He was the guy driving the water taxi. Yeah, obviously Guy Wallace was crucial because he was the water taxi driver who delivered Ben and Olivia and this mystery man to a yacht. And to be honest, um, Guy was probably one of the more sober people that was there that night. He worked at Ferno Lodge uh, behind the bar and also running the water taxi, a few water taxi trips that night. So in many ways, you know, police obviously went to him and, and thought that he would be the most reliable witness, and and he was. Um, he immediately kind of gave what information he could. He suggested that it was a catch, uh, a two-masted yacht that he dropped Ben and Olivia off on, um, which was a wooden boat, uh, kind of old-styled with portholes and lots of ornate uh, rope work around it. And he, he did say, you know, in his first statement, catch, question mark. But he became very clear in his own mind uh, and publicly afterwards that that was the boat that he dropped Ben and Olivia off to. Um, and... He was given a real grilling by the police, and at one stage the police suggested that he might have even been involved in the disappearance of Ben and Olivia. Uh, and he he generally has stuck to, to that story. Initially he didn't identify Scott Watson as the mystery man on the water taxi, uh, but eventually he did after being shown a photo montage that people have been very critical of it, included a photo of Scott Watson that didn't really look like him in, in, uh, as he appears normally. And at trial, eventually, he did say that it was likely that it was Scott Watson who was the mystery man. Now, since then, of course, Guy Wallace has come out and, and reversed that opinion and said absolutely not, that it wasn't Scott Watson who was on the boat, that he thinks Scott Watson's 100% innocent. Uh, and so that's a crucial witness who has reversed his view on, on the case and reversed the evidence that he gave at trial. Can I jump out of this case for a moment uh, and ask you, Mike, we've been talking a lot about memory this week on the show just by coincidence, and does it give you cause to think hard about memory, to think about what your brain does with a, uh, 
a scene that you were involved in that you weren't taking particular notice of when you're asked about it over and over again, when you're asked to describe it over and over again, when people start criticising you. It's pretty crucial, isn't it? Oh, it's absolutely crucial, but it's unfortunately human memory is entirely fallible and there's any number of studies that show this, and especially in a, in a criminal context. People's memories can be perfect and can be right, but so often they're not. And so often over time they become influenced by other things that they might have heard uh, and, and by what other people have said. And so they are notoriously unreliable, unfortunately. Um, that's not to criticise anyone in this case because I think everyone has done their absolute best to remember what they saw, but just sometimes, you know, they're wrong. So when did police start looking at Scott Watson as a suspect? Really early on, and this is one of the perhaps troubling aspects of the case. When you think that there were 1,500-odd people at Ferno Lodge uh, that they had to talk to and get statements from, plus an enormous amount of other witnesses, um, they singled in on Scott Watson really, really early. The local police in Marlborough handled the case in the first five or six days. Then it was a detective from Christchurch, Rob Pope, who many people will know his name, um, came up to lead the investigation. Now, within a few days, Rob Pope had decided that Scott Watson was their most likely uh, person or suspect. Um, Rob Pope later told me that, you know, Scott Watson stuck out like dog's balls, um, and he, but he couldn't give me any real reason why that was, other than that he had some kind of, you know, Pedigree. Well, Scott Watson had a bit of a, a, a criminal history when he was a younger man. Had virtually had only one conviction in the previous eight years before Ben and Olivia went missing, um, and so the police did hone in on him very quickly to the point where they pulled his boat from uh, Scott Watson had had a boat called a yacht called Blade that he built himself, twenty uh, six foot steel boat, and. Uh, that's what Scott Watson had arrived at Ferno Lodge with on uh, that night and left on. And so the police, uh, on January the 12th, 1998, pulled that boat from the water and took it away for forensic examination. And it was the same day that they hauled Scott Watson in and essentially accused him of murdering Ben and Olivia. Um, so that was very early in the case when, A, you had hundreds more witnesses still to interview from Ferno Lodge. B, you had numerous reports coming in from around the country, of, of a catch. Because in the first week or so, that's what everyone thought had happened. Guy Wallace had said, look, he dropped the Ben and Olivia off on a catch. And so the whole country was looking for this mystery catch. And when the police pulled a, a, a much smaller, 26-foot, single-masted boat from the water that didn't match the description of the catch at all, it was, it was a real surprise. But Rob Pope was so confident that even at that stage, he said it's almost certain that the catch doesn't exist which struck a lot of people as premature and very extraordinary and still does concern a lot of people um, who, because there were a number of sightings of catches, obviously, and I can't tell you how many people over the years have contacted me saying that they saw a catch or they saw something uh, that really concerned them, but the police just dismissed it, told them they weren't looking for a catch anymore, told them that, um, or, or never got back to the people, never took a statement from them. So that is an area of concern about the investigation. That yeah, the... and I, 
I guess it wouldn't surprise people to hear that sometimes once the police have decided who their man or woman is that they start getting a bit narrow in terms of their investigation. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's uh, uh, you know something that commonly happens. But, of course, they had four million people watching them with this one because it was so incredibly high profile. Have you had a chance to go back and look at media coverage at the time with what you know now? I mean, what strikes you about the coverage at the time? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jesse. The, the police were under enormous pressure. You've got to remember that this was a hugely high-profile case at a time of the year, New Year's, when there's a, pretty much a news drought. So all the country's media descended on Marlborough, and you had Gerald Hope, who was very eloquent and, and very available to the media particularly, um, wanting to get this story out there continually. So this story was the biggest thing for throughout January and the months afterwards, and public interest, and it's never stopped. So the, so the pressure on the police was enormous. I think the media, uh, and it's really easy to be uh, wise in hindsight, mm. possibly accepted um, the police line too much, and... I'm as culpable as anyone in this, given that I was a reporter at the time. But I will say one thing, that all our information was coming from the police and from, from the families of the victims. The Watson family did not speak, and I can understand why, and they were advised not to. But the media was only getting really one side of the story, and we were being fed a lot of information on and off the record by the police, um, quite a bit of it that turns out to be inaccurate. But the silence from the Watson family allowed this void in which an image of Scott Watson was created and perpetuated that he was a bad bastard, essentially, and that he was his whole family were were really bad, almost gangsters. It, it was, it was um, a, a very concerted effort to kind of demonise Watson and his family and to separate them from neighbours, families, friends, and even Gerald Hope admits this, to the point, you know, where police were telling the Watson, uh, the Hope family and the media that Scott Watson was involved in an incestuous relationship with his sister. I mean, this is just horrible, horrible, you know, absolutely uh, untruthful stuff. But this was what was being drip-fed in a way to try and create an image of Scott Watson. Okay, so when we look at what the evidence against Scott Watson, we have these um, sort of eyewitness reports of him being the last man on that water taxi, uh, depending on who you listen to and, and you know what version of their statement you look at. And what other evidence is there? Oh, look, there were a lot of circumstantial things, and you've got to remember about this case that it is a circumstantial case. We've got no bodies, we've got no weapon, we've got no real crime scene, we've got no eyewitnesses. So uh, the the evidence presented against Scott Watson, a lot of it might have seemed peripheral on its own, but it all went together to form a case against him. I mean, there were things like that there were two holes in the squabs on Scott Watson's yacht, which police suggested had to be cut out to remove evidence um, that any of the victims might have bled on them, etc. There were supposed scratches on the hatch of Scott Watson's boat, which 
were meant to suggest that Olivia was scrabbling to get out from there. Something that has has now been proven to be almost totally rubbish, and even Gerald Hope accepts that it's rubbish. Um, they said Scott Watson lied about his movements in his yacht the next morning because he left uh, Ferno Lodge quite early and went to Erie Bay, which is in Tory Channel. Uh, and Scott Watson says he arrived there about late morning, midday, and the police said no rubbish. He went out to Tory Channel uh, to Cook Strait, dumped the bodies of Ben and Olivia, then came back to Erie Bay about five o'clock in the evening. So they said he was lying. There were two jailhouse snitches that police produced at trial who said that Watson had admitted his guilt to them while he was on remand in prison, that he'd whispered this through a peephole to people who he'd never met before. But but essentially the most powerful evidence by far were two hairs um, from Olivia that police said were found on a blanket on Scott Watson's yacht. Um, These two blonde hairs from Olivia... um, were found several days or several weeks afterwards but uh, there's so much controversy about these hairs and about how they were tested uh, by ESR that there's a lot of doubt about them and a lot of people just don't feel that you can put um, the weight on them that the police and Crown and the jury obviously did. Um, even Gerald Hope says the handling of them was sloppy, that an investigator stuffed up this evidence and that was so crucial, um, and and we lost a chance to, be, to find more conclusively whether Scott Watson was guilty or not by that. Um, we'll get to the hairs in a moment. I just wanted to share with you a little fact that I heard at the time, which um, was there was a repaint of the boat. There was a, apparently a lot of cleaning. In fact, I don't know if I heard this the media or unofficially that he had gone so far as to clean the outsides and insides of his cassette tape covers <laughs> in the boat. Do you remember that bit? Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's amazing how little bits stick with you and little bits can be so persuasive to you um, about whether this is normal and whether that makes the person guilty or not. Scott Watson did repaint the top of his boat, the cabin of his boat. He said he'd always planned to do that, had arranged with someone to get paint uh, at Erie Bay where he went to after Ferno Lodge. And, but the police you know, construed that as being trying to disguise his yacht. Um, the cleaning was again uh, something that the police said he, he absolutely was meticulous about trying to remove evidence that Ben and Olivia had been on board his boat. Well, the scientists that gave uh, evidence at trial actually said only 30 to 50% of the hard surfaces in the boat had actually been cleaned down. Only, I think, about half of the cassettes had been cleaned. Scott Watson's argument was he'd, he'd just come down the North Island in his yacht, had been hit by some rough weather, particularly around Wellington Harbour and coming across Cook Strait. And, you know, sea spray had got into the cabin and he just wanted to clean it up. You have to remember that Scott Watson lived on this boat. This was his house. And so he just said, this is normal. You know, I cleaned up my boat. And salt on a boat is just destructive to everything, especially your stereo. And you you put a cassette that's got salt spray in it into the stereo, it's going to stuff it. So he just said it was absolutely normal. And to a large extent, the evidence of the experts at trial suggested that it probably was just normal. I'm speaking with Mike White, a journalist who has covered uh, this particular case that we're looking at for decades now. It's the murders of Ben Smart and Olivia Hope. 
Uh, Mike White is an investigative journalist and an author, and this is a new series we're starting today looking at some famous criminal cases in New Zealand. So a bit of an indictment if you find two of the victim's hairs on a blanket in a suspect's boat, but what's the problem with that or potential problems? Well, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was critical evidence. If they are Olivia's hairs and he said they were never on his boat, well, you have to think that he's lying. But the hairs uh, were recovered um, once the boat had been taken out of the water. They were then, uh, all the hairs that were lifted off that blanket from Scott's, Scotland's boat were sent to ESR um, they were examined. There were about 400 hairs in this packet. They were examined initially, and the scientist who was examining them knew she was looking for uh, hairs that might uh, might have been Olivia's. She knew that Olivia had blonde, long blonde hair. But in that first examination of the hairs, uh, she didn't find any hairs that uh, matched Olivia's, any long blonde hairs. Weeks later, subsequently, she examined the hairs again and, lo and behold, found a 15-centimetre and 25-centimetre hair that were blonde, which were later shown to um, probably almost certainly be from Olivia or someone in her maternal line. Um, The problem was that on the same day, uh, the scientist had been examining reference hairs, hairs from Olivia's clothes that police had taken from her home as reference hairs, and she'd examined them uh, in the same lab on the same day, and so there were accusations that it was possibly a contamination, and this was uh, aided by the discovery that the bag holding these hairs from the blanket on Watson's boat had a one centimetre slit in it that couldn't be really explained, nor had police counted the number of hairs that they took from Olivia's home as reference hairs. So you couldn't say, well, there's none missing, you know, so it can't have been contamination. So there's all these problems about the testing of the hairs and how they were were found that uh, have clouded that aspect, which unfortunately, as Gerald Hope says, if we had more certainty about that, we'd probably have certainty about the guilt or innocence of Scott Watson. Should say for a moment, by the way, I mean, it's a fascinating case and so many of us have spent years thinking about it and chatting about it, but, gee, I just thought then when I thought of um, police going into Olivia's home and looking for hairs to use as evidence. How heartbreaking that must have been for the family. Obviously, heartbreaking for the family, and we should just acknowledge, too, that there is a real tragedy at the centre of this case. Any other evidence that is interesting, um, either, you know, counting in favour of a conviction for Scott Watson or against it, Mike, that you've uncovered over the years? Well, I mean, a lot's changed since the trial, and I think it's important to note that not only has Guy Wallace crucial Crown witness um, backtracked on his his testimony and, and the evidence that he gave at trial and says it's not Scott Watson so is another crucial witness who was in the bar at Ferno Lodge and who identified Scott Watson at the trial as this mystery man in the bar um, that's Ros McNally um, you've also had of the two secret witnesses the jailhouse snitches uh, who there was so much secrecy and drama about them the court was cleared and uh, the windows were taped up when they gave evidence um, well one of them recanted subsequently and I've met the other one and uh, to be honest I, I, I struggled to see how 
he was given credibility sufficient to put him on on uh, the stand at Scott Watson's trial. And just the mere fact that jailhouse snitches are used in cases usually shows that the case is inherently weak and there's a lot of uh, concern about their use. I think um, it's it's how the case has kind of progressed over the last 20 years is how they often do. New evidence comes to light, new things are brought up and I think a lot of good work has been done in this case to give greater context and understanding. But essentially the powers that be have... Um, been pretty staunch that Scott Watson's uh, guilty and have rejected all his appeals along the way. Getting some uh, questions in from listeners, I'm just going to sort of try and tiptoe around the potentially defamatory ones, a lot of um, them referring to um, Scott Watson and what he might have been involved in 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 previous years, whether police may have had a vendetta about him, anything you can sort of safely speak to about about that? No, no, you know, it's no secret that Scott Watson was um, a bit of trouble, shall we say, as a a kid. You know, he left school at about 14, got into some serious, not serious trouble, no, got into some trouble, um, minor stuff. You know, smoking dope, um, stealing cars uh, from about ages 15 to 18. But as I say, in the eight years before he was arrested for Ben Olivia's murders, uh, there'd only been one um, conviction. He only has one violence uh, conviction for a fight outside a pub. Um, It was easy to demonise him, can I put it that way? He was sort of rough. Surly, he didn't like authority, he had tats. So it was really easy to paint a picture that this could well have been the person that um, murdered Ben and Olivia. Right. But maybe I should be more specific and say that, you know, I, I mean, because it's a, it's a two degrees of separation country, right? And I remember hearing rumours at the time that there was another unsolved murder that police had tried to pin on him and hadn't been able to and this was some sort of payback. Yeah, well, this could be to do with, uh, people might be thinking of the Nancy Frey murder or disappearance up uh, in Great Barrier. Mm. Um, Again, people said that Watson had been up there and that he was uh, um, fingered in that one. But um, the lead investor in that case confirmed that Watson had never been a suspect and he was never even questioned about it. So there's always in these cases, there's an enormous amount of rumour and speculation. Most of it's irrelevant or muddled or false. But the stuff that sounds good travels, right? Oh, yeah, and it sticks. And for, as I say, for everyone, there's that one little bit of evidence that for them confirms one way or the other that this must be the guy or he must be innocent because for them it strikes them as so extraordinary or so unlike the way they would act. Uh, Mike's the expert on this case, so if you've got any questions that you want to ask or, th- or th- theories, uh, send them in. 2101 is the text number. Is it true that Scott Watson has never produced the clothes he was wearing that night? Yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because um, the police claimed that Scott Watson, uh, the clothes that he was wearing that night, were never found. The suggestion being that he destroyed them. Um, Scott Watson is adamant that those clothes, the jeans, the Levi jeans, I think it was, a Levi shirt, uh, Levi jeans and country road shirt, um, would have been on the boat. He said he would have, when he went back to Picton, they were washed at his parents' place on land and they would have been back on the boat. So he's adamant that they were there and that police, for whatever reason, 
uh, are saying that they weren't found. I mean, you have to remember that the police took his boat, literally pulled it out of the water, put it on a trailer, took it to a, a hangar at an Air Force base near Blenheim, um, and that was the last access that anyone other than the police had to it. Uh, and he also does point out that there were lots of similar denim shirts that were uh, hanging up in wardrobes at his parents' place, at his sister's place, that the police never showed any interest in. So he's kind of surprised that that, that if they were so sure that uh, there was a missing denim shirt, why they didn't take those as evidence. Any photographic evidence, particularly on this catch sloop thing, any um, yachts that um, turn up in photos that might be useful? Oh, any number of photos of catches. Um, like I say, I'd like a buck for every time I've been sent a picture of a, a mystery <laughs> catch. Um, yeah, look, we've got eyewitnesses who, who are adamant they saw catches in the days after Ben and Olivia went missing, some even saying that they saw a couple on board matching the description of Ben and Olivia. Um, the police are adamant that there was no catch, um, that people were mistaken, or that it was another boat that was there called the Alliance, which uh, happened to have two masts. Um, whether there was a catch or not, I don't know, there's an awful lot of evidence or a lot of people who have come forward adamant about that. But uh, in some ways, it's after 20 years, if we haven't found it, Jesse, I don't know if we're ever going to find certainty about that. Mm, someone's asked me about satellite photos. Any chance of tracking boats' movements using satellite photos? Yeah, we have to remember it was 1998, early 98, and I think some work was done on that by the police, but you have to assume that if anything was available, it would have formed part of the, the police case. So where are you at with this, Mike? Sorry to ask, but I have to. Do you think that he did it? Oh, look, I've, um, I've spent more than... 20 years sort of looking at this case and I've uh, I've changed my view an awful lot on this case, Jesse. I'll just say that when uh, Scott Watson was convicted, I was adamant that the police had got it right. We were very supportive of the police. We trusted them completely and when Scott Watson's verdict was handed down, I remember with some embarrassment fist-pumping in the lounge at my home in Picton. And over the years, though, I've... Uh, looked more at the case, I've heard different views, I've managed to speak to the Watson family and I've become increasingly unsettled about the conviction of Scott Watson. I'm not ever going to be in a position to say he's innocent or guilty, he did it or he didn't. I wasn't there. I don't know. All you can go on is the evidence. And if the standard of conviction in New Zealand for guilt is beyond reasonable doubt... I struggle to get beyond reasonable doubt that Scott Watson can be proven to be guilty in this case. That's not to say that uh, there isn't other evidence out there that we don't know, and there are many people that have a different view on this, obviously. He's exhausted his appeals, right? Yeah, he has. Uh, well, yes and no. He's been through the traditional process of Court of Appeal, and he went to the Privy Council and didn't get a hearing there. His first um, uh, application for what they call the Royal Prerogative of Mercy, where the Ministry of Justice essentially looks at the case, that was rejected after four years. But he has another application uh, on the go at the moment for a royal prerogative of mercy. That's been in for about two years. The Ministry of Justice appointed a 
retired High Court judge, Graham Pankhurst, to look at it, and he's doing that at the moment. And as I understand, um, he will report back about this application sometime this year, and he can say, look, there are no grounds for another appeal, or he can suggest that the case gets referred back to the Court of Appeal um, for further consideration. So we'll wait and hear what he has to say about that. Where are those bodies? Um, Who would know? Uh, And I think that's one of the most tragic things about this case is that the families of Ben and Olivia have never uh, known that. And if there's one overriding frustration about all the effort that's been put into this case over 22 years is that um, we don't know where Ben and Olivia are or truly what did happen to them. You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan, and you can find more episodes of this series on the RNZ podcast page on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. And if you like this series, you might also like Gone Fishing. You can find that one along with all our other great podcasts. 